Anybody here today? Well, ten of you are here today. The rest of you will get here eventually. Glad you're here today on Labor Day weekend. And uh, just to give you a little series update, we're three weeks into this series. Next week will conclude. Brian Heinrich will be preaching. And uh, then we're going to get into a two-week series. about. It's called uh, I'm In, just what it looks like to make a commitment to Christ and uh, talking about baptism. And then we will resume the story on September 29th. So you've got a few weeks to get caught up if you're behind on your reading. And there you go. So... I hope you've enjoyed the 80s illusions. There have been some little Easter eggs, even in the message. Just, and I don't know if you, we don't point them out or highlight them, but they're there. If you're a child of the 80s or an adult of the 80s, they're there. So you can keep looking for those. Have you ever wondered this? Have you ever wondered how it's possible that the very people you love the most are the ones who know how to get under your skin like no one else? Have you ever noticed that? Like the people that you're closest to, you just love them, but sometimes they just make you go, ah, you know? I'm guessing some of the times you've been maddest in your life has been with somebody that you are related to. It's your brother or your sister, maybe one of your children, or your parents, or even the person you're married to. I'm guessing that that's true for you. I heard about a couple who had been arguing all day. They've been going at it, and finally it got down. It descended to the point where they just got, and got so mad at each other. They're giving each other the cold shoulder, the silent treatment. They're not talking. So later that evening, the man suddenly realized something. I'm leaving on business tomorrow morning. And that's not a surprise to me, remember that, but what he realized was, I'm leaving early. I'm going to need my wife's help waking up tomorrow morning, because this guy is notorious for sleeping through his alarm. His wife was the way he got up, but they're mad at each other. She's like, what am I going to do, because I need some help here. I'm going to need her to wake me up if I'm going to make it to the airport in time, because he's got to get up like at 4.30 in the morning. So he's thinking about this. He knew she gets up early anyway. He knew that she was like an early riser. She's better than his alarm clock, but he didn't want to talk to her, because they're still mad at each other, and they're not talking. So he came up with this idea. He took a piece of paper and he wrote a little note. Please wake me at 4.30 a.m. And he put it somewhere where he knew she would find it. The next morning he woke up and he panicked. Sunlight is streaming through the curtains and he realizes I did not make my flight. He looks at the alarm clock. Sure enough, it's 8 o'clock. He slept through everything. He went from being frantic to furious as he's like, why did my wife not wake me up? And so he throws the covers back. He starts to jump out of bed, and he notices a piece of paper laying on the pillow next to him. It's his wife's handwriting, and it simply says, it's 4.30, wake up. <laughs> That's how it is in the closest relationships, isn't it? People who are closest to you, they just know right where to push and what buttons to push, and they know all of that. And so... Here's a question. It's a mystery for those of you who are in love right now, or maybe you have been in love at one time, or you hope to be in love. How is it that the two people who, at the start of the relationship, love each other so much, by the end of the relationship, can't stand to be around each other? How is that possible? How is it that two people can stand at the altar, and they can swear before God and a minister and their family, and their friends, that they are going to be committed to each other till death do us part. And then there comes a point in the relationship, five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, where they just they hate each other. They can't dissolve the union fast enough. How does that work? Since we are in the 80s, I'll quote the famous uh, theologian Meatloaf here. I swore I'd love you till the end of time, so now I'm praying for the end of time to hurry up and arrive, because if I have to spend another minute with you, right? As I said, we're in week three of this series, uh, Do You Believe in Love? This, we've actually adapted this series from something that Andy Stanley, a pastor down in Georgia, has taught. I just found it to be incredibly helpful, so Brian and I are adopting this for our message series here. And Brian, as I said, he'll be finishing the series out next week. I hope it's been helpful to you. It's been helpful to me. 
Today we're going to try to figure out how it is that the people who are closest to us can bring out the worst in us. And you know that's true. And I'm looking at this today through the filter of love and marriage, but please understand that this is so applicable to areas besides just marriage. Maybe you're not married, and maybe you don't think you'll ever will be married, but this is applicable to all your close relationships. So just keep that in mind as we go through this teaching. The question for the whole series that we've been looking is, is it possible for two people to stay in love forever? There's something in us that really hopes that's true. I think there's something in each one of us that believes that's true. And, and no matter how many divorces you've seen or how many broken relationships you've seen, no matter how our culture is doing in this regard, no matter how maybe your family has done, no matter maybe what your past experience about this has been, there's something in you and there's something in me that hopes and believes that this is possible. There's something in us even that maybe says, I think even despite everything that I've experienced before, it can be possible for me in the future. And so you look at this, and I really think if you, if you believe in God, that this is another evidence that points to God in our lives. It's like his fingerprints all over us, that he's created us to want this kind of a, a long-lasting relationship to say that I can be with someone who's my best friend and we're just as close or closer 50 years down the road as we were when we started. And as we talked about last week, that boils down to following the example of Jesus, to, to love each other like Jesus loves us, to say, you first. And really, honestly, let's, let's just go ahead and be truthful here and put it all out on the table. If it was really just as simple as, I'm going to put you first, and you're going to put me first, and we're going to put each other first, and then we're just going to be in love forever, wouldn't we have already done that? Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't work. I think it does. I think that's the way we need to go, but it's just maybe not as simple to put into action as it is to say, right? And here's the thing that we discovered a couple of weeks ago. If each of us came into the relationship with a heart that was whole and brimming over with love and 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 in our childhood, that everything about our childhood, our parents had just poured love and acceptance and security into us, and the significant adults in our lives and our friends, they had all just shown us security and affirmation and respect and all of those things, encouragement, and your heart was just overflowing with love, and then you came into the relationship and you married somebody who had the same experience, and their heart was just full of love, then you would be able to put you first, and they'd be going, no, 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 you first, and you would put each other first, and Jesus' love would be at the center of your marriage, and it would be great. But how many people do you know that actually come into any relationship with a heart that has never been nicked up, dinged, damaged? You've never been betrayed. You've never been abused. You've never been abandoned. You've never been hurt. You've never been neglected. You've never been scorned. Do you know anybody who's ever gone through life unscathed, who doesn't have a single ding or a dent on them? I don't know that person. And you probably don't either. So here's the thing. We each come into our relationship and... I love how T.D. Jakes put this. He, he describes it, and he actually was standing in front of a bunch of cars, and they're really nice-looking cars. And he says, you know, you, you may look on the outside like you got it all together, but everybody's got a little bit of junk in the trunk. Everybody's got a little bit of baggage that they're bringing into that relationship. Everybody's a little bit nicked up, dinged up, and damaged. And so even though on the outside we may look like we've all got it together and we're so polite, and so there's something going on in our hearts, and it's not brimming over with love. It's brimming over with other things. I've got a couple of friends here. Brian tweeted this if you're following Connection and you're getting the, the um, I just forgot the word for it. It's not email. Tweets, the tweets, the updates, the text message updates. You know we're going to meet the mugs this weekend. Well, I've got the mugs here. They're a beautiful couple. I want you to meet them. This is Mr. Mug and Mrs. Mug. You, come on, give them a Connection welcome. So, yeah. Mr. Mug and Mrs. Mug, they met at uh, 
And they met at a concert. You know, this is the 80s. So we're, they met at a Def Leppard concert, right? And he saw her, and she was rocking that T-shirt, and she looked at him, and he's got those jeans. And, oh, they're a good-looking couple. And they met, and they started dating. They went to college together. They got married. And, and you know when they're dating, they were so careful with each other. Because when we're dating, we put our best foot forward, and we filter, don't we? So a friend of mine said, you ought to date for at least like a year, maybe two years, because anybody can hide who they really are for a year. You really get to know a person when you've known them a couple of years. But they were so careful with each other because they got stuff in them, but they're very careful. Well, they got married, and, and the marriage is going along fine until one day they hit a little bump in the road because every marriage has those bumps in the road and stuff spilled out. Like, and, and Mrs. Muggs looking at him going, where did that come from? I didn't know you were like that. And Mr. Muggs looking at her like, I didn't know you had issues when I married you. I'm not sh-. And, and they get another bump. They get another argument. Stuff just starts spilling out of both of them. And so they're so upset with each other, and they didn't see us coming. So Mrs. Mugg goes, and she talks to somebody. Ladies, who do you talk to? She goes to talk to her sister, her mom, her friends, somebody. And she goes, I just don't even recognize him anymore. So like, he's not even the person I married. And he just so, oh. And he does these things that makes me so mad. And he, who do guys go talk to? I don't know. You tell me. He goes to talk to his brother or his friend, or maybe he just goes talks in the mirror. I don't know. Mr. Mug, he goes off, and he's like, man, that girl has got issues. I didn't see any of this, and, and she, she makes them so mad. And here's the thing about each one of them. In their relationship, they assume that the reason the beads spill out of them is because of what the other person does, right? You make me so mad, and I, I wouldn't be this way if you didn't do that. This is the truth of the matter. It's simpler than that. Why do blue beads come out of Mr. Mug, and why do pink beads come out of Mrs. Mug? Because that's what's already in Mr. Mug, and that's already what's in Mrs. Mug. You're writing this down, right? This is complex. <laughs> Here's the thing. In our lives, in our relationships, we tend to monitor our spouse's behavior. And if you wouldn't say that that way, if you wouldn't do that, if you would do this more, if you wouldn't make that tone of voice, you wouldn't have that expression, then I wouldn't be like this. But the truth is, what comes out of you was already within you. And what your spouse did was just a trigger. And so when we've got issues in us and we're so careful to hide them, eventually, this is why you find that the people who are closest to you bring the worst out in you. This is it right here. Because there's no relationship like the marriage relationship where you get that close, where that person can really bump you. And that's what you discover what's really in you. No one absolutely can bring that out quite like your spouse. And we monitor each other's behavior, like I said, and we say, well, the reason I act this way is because of what you did or what you said or what you didn't say or what you didn't do or that tone of voice or whatever. But the truth is, it came out. And so what you think is, if that person, my spouse, would just stop doing this or start doing that, then I wouldn't be this way. But the truth of the matter is, it was already in you. What they did just triggered something that was already in you. And the question is, what do I do with this? Because we can't go through our lives just filtering, just hoping to catch it before it comes out, right? So what do we do with that? Well, here's what we do. The first step is to pay attention to what's inside of me. We like to say, well, it's your, you did this or you didn't do that. We're monitoring our spouse's behaviors when we really ought to be looking at what's going on in our own heart first because what comes out of you is what was already in you. Here's what the, the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, would say. Remember King Solomon? Talked about him a couple weeks ago in the story. Wisest man who had lived at that point. God gave him incredible wisdom. 
He says it this way in Proverbs 4.23. If you've got a Bible, you can look it up. It's up here on the screen too. Solomon wrote this, wisest man who'd lived to that point in history. He said, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart because it is the wellspring of your life. Everything in your life flows from it. What Solomon's teaching us is this. You can write this down. It is vitally important to monitor the condition of your heart. Vitally important to monitor the condition of your heart. To know what's going on in here. Because Solomon says your entire life flows from in here. Everything that you eventually say, everything you eventually do, every attitude that you embrace, every thought that you have has its origin in your heart. It is the wellspring. Everything in your life flows from your heart. So Solomon says guard it. Because this is the source for everything that you're going to eventually live out. Now, Jesus reiterates this teaching. If you go over to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 15, and you'll find this where Jesus says pretty much the same thing. He just says it a little bit better than Solomon because Jesus is, if Solomon was one of the wisest guys in the world, Jesus was absolutely the wisest. Now, the context for what Jesus is about to teach his disciples is that Jesus' disciples got in trouble with the Sunday school teachers of his day. The religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, they got after Jesus' disciples. They're like, guys, you're not washing your hands. God's going to be mad at you. Now, I know what you're thinking. Like, well, I'd be mad too. This is not like Jesus' disciples walked out of the bathroom without washing their hands. They're talking about a religious washing. And so the Jewish leaders are saying, you're not doing all the religious washings right. And so God's going to be mad at you because you're not totally clean. And Jesus pulls his disciples aside and says, guys, you're okay. I think I know how God feels about this since I am God, and you're okay. And here's what Jesus goes on to tell him. He says, it's not what goes into your body that makes you spiritually unclean. It's not what you take in that makes God mad at you. It's actually what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. And then Jesus says this in uh, Matthew chapter 15. I'm going to read this actually out of the message paraphrase. Jesus says this in verse 19. What comes out of the mouth gets its start in the heart. Remember what Solomon said? It's the source of your life. It's from the heart, Jesus says, that we vomit up evil arguments, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, lies, and cussing. That's what pollutes. Eating or not eating certain foods, washing or not washing your hands, that's neither here nor there. This is what Solomon would tell us. It's what Jesus would tell us. Guard your heart. Monitor what's going on in there because everything you eventually do and say and think started there. And here's what it, why it matters to us. It's why it matters to all of us in a relationship. It's because whatever is in you is going to come out of you regardless of who is with you. And you might say, well, it's the other person's fault and they bring this out of me. But no, 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 Solomon and Jesus would tell you, no, it started in here in your heart. What's in you is going to eventually come out of you regardless of who's with you. And you may think, well, I just married the wrong person. If I marry the right person, then I won't be this way. No, Jesus says, Whatever's in you will come out of you, regardless of who's with you. So you got to, first of all, figure out what's going on here in your heart, because that's the source of everything. And we want to try to filter, and sometimes we just want to kind of put a gate on our mouths and just say, well, I just won't say that stuff, but it all started down in here. Because you'll get jostled in your marriage relationship. And so what Jesus and what Solomon would say to us is, if you want to fix your relationship, if you don't like the way your marriage is going, instead of figuring out what's wrong with your spouse and pointing all of that out, hey, they may have dropped the ball, they may have said that thing they shouldn't have, but that was just a trigger. What came out of you was actually in you to begin with. Now I want to get practical about this because all of us, to one extent or another, as I said, we've all got issues with our heart. 
There's not a single one of us that walks in here with a heart that's unscathed. There's not a single one of us who can say, my heart is absolutely pure. There's not one of us who can say, I don't have baggage. So I want to give you a very simple exercise that you can put into practice. And if you'll put this into play, I think you'll find that this is going to be very helpful not only to know what's going on in your heart, but to start the process of fixing your heart. And here it is. So this exercise, there's three parts to it. The first thing I would encourage you to do, you can write this down, pause and reflect. Pause and reflect. If you're in a conversation and you sense a strong emotion coming on, if you feel anger rising up, pause and reflect. Before you speak, when you realize, I've been bumped and I'm I'm ready to spill, pause and reflect and think about what's going on. Restrain your immediate response before you do anything. And this is going to be hard because the way that we are wired by God is the reason he gave us anger is anger makes you act. It's the impetus of anger is to get you out of a situation maybe that's dangerous. So when we have anger, our immediate impulse is Hulk smash. That's what we want to do, right? Because that's what anger does. And it is natural to want to take action when you are mad. That's just the way God works. It's natural for you to want to take action when someone is mad at you. Maybe you're not even mad, but somebody's mad at you. That makes something in you want to do something. It's the way God made us. But this is so critical to just put one step in between your feeling of anger and your action, and that is just to pause and reflect and go, what's going on here? James, the half-brother of Jesus, puts it this way. He gives us this advice in James 1.19. He says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And here's why. He goes ahead and tells us why in verse 20. Because God's righteousness does not grow from anger. God's righteousness does not grow from man's anger. So you pause and you reflect and go, what's going on here? I know this is, this is one of those things that's very simple to say and very hard to do. I'm just from my own experience, it's very hard not to respond to somebody else's anger or to respond in anger. <coughs> but if the, speed, the beads are spilling, you stop and you ask yourself, why am I mad? What's really going on here? Maybe you'll discover if you pause and reflect that it's not even your spouse that you're mad at. You ever found yourself doing that? You are yelling or you're mad or you're doing something and then you realize, I'm not even mad at him. I'm not even mad at her. I'm mad about that conversation I had earlier today at work and I'm still fuming about it. I'm mad about that person who cut me off in traffic. And so you, know, you pause and reflect. You're like, I'm mad at that. I'm, I'm taking it out on the wrong person. It may not even have been that day. It may be something earlier in your life and something your spouse did just brought up a memory of what somebody else did or the way that your mom or your dad would speak or somebody else. And, and you realize when you pause and reflect, I'm not really mad at you. This is something from way back. And I need to think about that and why this is making me so angry right now. Maybe you'll discover, if you pause and reflect, that it's not even anger that you're really feeling. Men and women, and I'll, I'll speak just probably for men since I am one of those, but... Uh, I, ladies, maybe you can tell me later, but I know men especially, and in my experience in talking to you, we don't have a great vocabulary to describe our emotions. You ask a guy what's wrong, and he'll give you two things. I'm fine, or I'm frustrated. We got two speeds, right, guys? I'm not fine, or I'm frustrated, or I'm angry. What's wrong? I think we can do a little bit more than that, though, right? There's been some great work done on this. Uh, Carla McLaren is a researcher. And she's wrote some books about this, about developing your emotional vocabulary. And I've been privileged to have some of the training in this, too. Um, we have a quarterly retreat at, at when we were part of Harvester, and they've talked a lot to us about just developing your emotional vocabulary and really knowing what's going on. 
And so when you stop and you pause and you reflect, you go, I know it feels like anger, but a lot of things that feel like anger aren't really anger. And so you learn to develop. And you stop and you pause and you go, maybe what I'm really feeling is irritated. How about this one? Cranky. I just didn't get enough sleep, and I'm, I think I'm mad, but I'm not. I'm just cross, or I'm aggravated, or I'm resentful. Maybe what's really going on is you resent somebody and the attention they're getting or whatever. <coughs> and what, what seems like anger when you reflect on it is not. Maybe you feel impatient and you think things aren't going as fast as they should. Something's not happening the way you think it should. Maybe you feel unappreciated. And you think, I'm mad, but what you realize is, no, I think I'm just feeling like I'm not being thanked or noticed for what I'm doing. And it seems like anger, but really I'm just feeling unappreciated. Maybe you feel embarrassed or silly. And it seems like anger, but you realize, no, I've, I think I may have stuck my foot in my mouth. and you know, So maybe that's what you're feeling. Or maybe you're feeling picked on or lonely or betrayed or out of control or abandoned or fearful or anxious. Or Guarding your heart means pausing and saying, what's really going on here? Before you act, speak out. Now here's what the next step is. Once you pause and you reflect on what's going on and you kind of get an idea, maybe it's not anger at all, maybe it's something else going on, put it into words. Just to yourself, but put a label to it. Say it out loud. Say it to yourself. I mean, you don't say anybody else. Just say it. You know what? I think I feel unappreciated. I've been doing a lot, and I don't think anybody's noticing, and I'm just feeling unappreciated right now. Maybe you, uh, you stop and you pause and you think about it and you realize... Well, I, th- I think I, I thought I was mad because I felt like she was nagging me and getting on me, but you pause and you go, you know what? And you say this out loud to yourself at least. I think what's really going on here is I feel like I'm failing. Like every time she has to tell me about something, I feel like I haven't done my job as a husband. You know? So you pause and then you put it into words. Here's what happens when you actually like stop and you, you say what's going on and you put it into words. Man, you've taken away the power that that thing has over you. It's kind of like worry. If you're a worrier, I'd encourage you to do this. This is just a great thing to do. Take a piece of paper and write down the things you think you're worried about because as long as they just stay out there in your mind, kind of on the outskirts, kind of at the edge in the shadows, they seem a lot bigger than they really are. You put them down on paper, suddenly you've quantified what it is you're worried about, and you can get your hands around that. Same thing with your emotions. When you say it out loud and you identify it, you take its power away to control you and to control how you respond to that other person. This is so powerful to stop and say, here it is. As you name it, you see the situation more clearly. And you say it out loud, and it starts to make sense. And you can get your hands around what's going on. And here's what happens, too. As you start naming it, you start owning it. You go, I've been so mad at her because of what I think she says or doesn't say or doesn't do or whatever. But I think what's really going on here is this is my bead. And I need to own this. And maybe what she's doing is bringing that out, but in the end, it's really what was in me, and I need to own that. And it's my thing. And here's the next step in that, part of just putting it into words. First of all, say it to yourself. You may need to go to your spouse and just say to your spouse, you know what, I'm sorry. I mean, I've been responding to you, but I think this is my problem. This is my bead. And, and every time you say this, this is my thing, but when you say it that way, here's how I feel and here's what I want to do. Now, if you're the person on the other end of that conversation and, and Mrs. Mrs. Mug has come to you and you're Mr. Mug and she says to you, you know, I've got a problem when you do that and, and here's why and here's what I feel. You know what you do if you're the one listening to that conversation? 
Thank you for telling me that. You know what else you do? Nothing. I mean, there's so much in you that's going to want to go, that's right. And let me tell you about a few other of your beads while we're on the same conversation here. Thank you for telling me. And you know what a mature person will do when somebody comes to you and says, you know, this is how I feel when you do that. Mature person will think it through and go, maybe if that's what this elicits in you, maybe I just won't do that. Maybe I'll watch what I do. Now, there are times when you may need to say, look, I'm sorry, but despite the fact that my red hair makes you very angry, I can't change that. You're just going to have to bear the weight of who I am. But there are times when a healthy, emotionally healthy, mature person will say, I never realized that when I do this, that makes you feel that, so I'm going to do what I can to help you with that. It's not because I have to, but because I love you, I'm going to put you first. I'm going to do that, and we're going to do that for each other. Now, as you have these conversations, just to understand, there's no such thing as bad feelings. They're just feelings. That person is being very open and vulnerable to tell you that, what's going on. So you don't judge them. You don't criticize them. You just go, okay, thanks. But here's the third thing you want to do, and this is so important. You pause and reflect. You put it into words. But then the most important, the most powerful thing is you pray for God's help. Pray for God to change your your heart. And you know why that is? I think it's within our ability to figure out what's going on in here. I think it's within our ability, maybe with a trusted friend, to diagnose what, what we've got going on in there. I don't think it's within our power to fix what's wrong with our hearts. Uh, if, if you believe the Bible, if you believe the story is true, the way that, that we have it described to us, we were created perfect. We chose with our free will to disobey God, and something got broken. Something got fundamentally broken in our hearts because we chose to go our own way. And so there is something wrong in the world, and it is that we've chosen to disobey God. And the Bible tells us that because of our sinfulness, our choices, that we've become God's enemies in our hearts and in our minds and through our actions and behavior. We're like, I don't have anything to do with God. He's my enemy. And so what that does is it breaks our heart, and it disconnects some very important things. And there's no way that we can fix that ourselves. That's the whole story of the gospel. The good news of the Bible is that what we could not do for ourselves, God came to do for us. That when Jesus died on the cross and he rose again, what he was doing was not only paying for our sins and, and forgiving our sins. I mean, that'd be fine. Then we go our separate ways. God goes that way, we go that way. and we're. It's not about just going to heaven. God was looking for something so much bigger than that when Jesus came. He wants to fix our hearts. He wants to make, give us a new heart, make us into new people. That's what the whole story is about. It's not like we get to go to heaven and not go to hell. It's like God says, I want to make you into the person you were always designed to be, a person who willingly every time chooses the right thing. I want you to have a heart that actually produces the good life that you've always wanted. I want you and I, God says, to be family, not just no longer enemies, but family. And you can't do that on your own. This is like the fundamental of what it means to become a Christ follower, a Christian, is that you go to Jesus and you say, I can't do this myself. I want you to be my Savior. Yes, forgive me of my sins, but I want you to be my Lord. I want you to lead my life and give me a new heart. So that's what I would encourage you this morning to do if you've never done that. It's to just say to Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I'll obey you. I'll obey you by being immersed in water and baptism like you've told me to do. I will do whatever else you've told me to do, but please give me a new heart. I would encourage you this morning in your relationships, if you've already made Jesus Lord, to continue to put that love of God at the center of your life and to say, God, 
continue to fix what's in here. I don't want to just like filter and stop the things before they come out. I want the things that come from my heart to be good and pleasing to my spouse, to my family, to, to God. So Maybe you make that your prayer this morning. I'd invite you right now. Would you stand with me? And let's ask God about that right now. Father, this morning we come to you and I pray, Father, that we're humble. That we be not so prideful that we insist on continuing on our way, even if it's the wrong way, but that we would instead very humbly come to you and ask for your help. And Father, I thank you for so many in this room who have already accepted Christ as Lord. I pray that you would, in their spirits and their hearts, encourage them to continue to come to you for help, to come to you, to have you give us new hearts. And Father, I pray for people here who are still investigating, who are thinking, but I just pray that you would make yourself so real to them, that they have such a powerful experience of you that they would realize that, um, that, that you are there, that you have a love for them that has been there for eternity. And I pray that none of us would walk out of here saying no to that unconditional love that you have for us. I pray that you would strengthen our marriages. I pray that you would uh, hold us for those relationships that have not yet started. In every way, we look to you for what we need, and we trust you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.